0: Well, in just a few hours, Quinn and Justin, Joe and I are going to jump on a plane. We're going to head to India. While we're there, we're going to be walking through streets. Streets of the mega city of Kolkata, all the way down to streets and villages so small you can't even find them on Google Earth. It's going to be 115 degrees with 90% humidity. So in other words, it's going to be blistering hot. We're going to walk a lot. We're going to talk a lot, and we're going to get dirty. I don't know if you know much about Kolkata, but it's probably one of the dirtiest, smelliest, most unsanitary, darkest places that you could go. They have no infrastructure for sewage or sanitation. You finish your bottle of water, you just throw the, the bottle down, you know, and, and this is the way it goes. And we're going to be walking around, and we're going to be talking to Muslims and Hindus that do not know we're coming. They have no idea what to expect, but we're going to share the gospel with them, to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. We'll also be going around, and as we go, we're going to encourage believers the believers there are amazing. They have received the gospel. They've accepted the, the name of Jesus Christ amidst such hardship and persecution. These folks who know, some of them know little more than the gospel, they hang on to it so dearly that they're willing to embrace losing jobs, being ostracized from family, from friends. They've been shunned from communities entirely. Their stuff has been taken from them. They've been beaten. Their lives have been at stake. And their lives will be at stake. When we go, we'll also be working with orphans that live in a train station. Who have been forced into gangs. They've been forced to panhandle by abusive pimps. There's girls who are forced into the sex trade. Girls, young girls, that are raped countless times a day. This is a cruel and a dark place. We're going to a country where there are 330 million Hindu gods. And everywhere you look, there are shrines and temples that are devoted to demons. This is a spiritually oppressive place, a dark place, a rank place, a violent place, a cruel place, a dirty place, an uncomfortable, a difficult place. I can't wait to go. The I know these guys cannot wait to go. And you might be asking yourself, if you're the slightest bit reasonable, why on earth would you want to go? This does not sound like a vacation. Why would you pay money to go halfway around the world to a dirty, filthy place that's going to be a challenge, that's going to be hard? I can assure you that it's not because we're crazy. Though, from time to time, I have made people wonder. I can also assure you That it's not because we're radical or because we're hardcore. I mean, look at Quinn. He has on a purple shirt, he has worn pink. Real hardcore men do not wear pink or purple, nor do they wear skinny jeans, Justin. So it's not because we're hardcore. (laughs) Yeah. so what possesses us what possesses us to go and do this to sacrifice ourselves to go across the world into a difficult situation I can tell you this it has nothing to do with us we go in weakness we go in frailty we go as just men but there's something that drives us Or maybe you're you're thinking about these guys that I told you about. Guys that have suffered such oppression, such hardship, such difficulty in their lives daily. Just living where they live as lights, as salt in this world that is so dark, that is so cruel. Where the violence is so oppressive and the police force so few that most acts of violence don't even go recorded. What possesses them to stay there? and to share their faith, knowing that they're going to get beaten, knowing that their lives are going to be at stake. They would tell you the same thing, that they do it in weakness and frailty, that it has nothing to do with them. The reason why we sacrifice, the reason why we're willing to pay money to go across the country, or across the world to to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the reason why these guys are willing to endure such hardship day after day after day after day has nothing to do with us and everything to do with the Word of God. God's Word is living and abiding. And for those who have received it, who truly believe it, it is transformative. It changes everything. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we think. And as a result... We have an indestructible hope, and so we go in frailty and weakness, not trusting in ourselves and our own abilities, but trusting in the Word of God. In our text today, First Thessalonians chapter two, verses thirteen through sixteen, Paul affirms this, and he thanks God constantly because the church of the Thessalonians have confirmed it as well. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And we're going to look at this passage. Paul says, and we thank also uh, and we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Paul affirms, first of all, from this passage, that the Word of God was received by the believers in Thessalonica. Paul's picking up, actually, where he's left off in chapter 1, verse 2, where he's giving thanks to God constantly. He continues to offer prayers of gratitude to God without ceasing. If you look back over to chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, um, we see that the reason he gave thanks to God constantly is because he knows that the church in Thessalonica is loved and chosen by God. He says he gives thanks always. He, he's constantly mentioning them in, in his prayers as he remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Verse 4, because we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul is thanking God for his loving election of these believers. Paul is remembering God's electing love. He then goes on to describe how he can be confident that these Thessalonians have been loved and chosen by God. He says that they received the word. They received the gospel, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. He says that they've become imitators of Christ and of the apostles. That they have set an example in word and deed. And that their lives are characterized by repentance and faith. He says that they had turned to God from idols to serve the the true and living God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul then resumes this thanksgiving from chapter 1 here in chapter 2, verse 13, saying, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. But I have to wonder, how is this different? He seems to be saying basically the same thing in chapter 1 as he is in chapter 2. If you set them side by side, and you examine the Greek, you realize there's, they're almost identical. He says, in, in, he says, I thank God constantly. I thank God constantly. He says, You received the word. You receive, um, he said, you received, uh, you received the gospel not only in word. And then here he says, You received the word of God, not as the word of men. And then over here again, if you flip back in, in verse, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, You didn't receive it in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction well that's the same as him saying you've received it as it really is the word of god he even supports it the same way in verse in chapter 1 verse 6 he says you've become imitators in in 214 he says you have become imitators so he's they're virtually synonymous all the way through what's the real distinction here is is paul just providing us some sort of inclusio where he starts out an argument, kind of begins with it, and now he's bringing it full circle. He's coming back, and he's saying, I thank God constantly. He's trying to wrap up his thought before he moves on to his next argument. Is that what he's doing? I don't think so. I think Paul comes around again to thanking God because he has a second point to make. The first time he emphasized the loving election of God, that they have been loved and chosen by God. But here in chapter 2 verse 13, he seems to be focusing on the fact that they have received the gospel. He's focusing on their reception. So this is another reason why he thanks God continually. He does it by focusing their focusing it on their reception. So here in Paul, if you if you put these two side by side, chapter one and chapter two, and you look at this, what you see is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They go hand in hand. In chapter one, he says, You brothers, I, I'm thanking God for you constantly because you've been loved by God and He has chosen you. Your salvation, the fact that you know Christ, the fact that God's grace is at work within you is because of God's work. This is what God has done. Your salvation is because of God's sovereign intended plan. There it is, right here. And then he says in 2.13, but you receive the gospel. Your human responsibility was to receive the word, to embrace it, to believe it, to hold fast to it. And we can't pit one against the other. It's not as though we can simply say, you know what, God is sovereign in salvation, so we can leave it up to Him. He does it, He does the work, which is true, He does the work, we, but we can't leave it there. And nor can we say, you know what, we have to receive the Word. And it's not as though our reception invalidates the first one. It's not as though we say, hey, if it's contingent upon my receiving it, therefore then God's sovereignty doesn't ultimately mean that He saves me. Wrong. Paul always presents them as going together. This is God's loving election. God's electing love. This is two sides of the same coin. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility go together. And here, Paul is thanking God for both. So Paul thanks God that they've received the word. Not as the word of men, but for what it really was. What it really is. What you heard from us. The word of God. And this is an amazing thing in itself. Paul is saying, my gospel, the gospel that you heard from me, the message that you heard from me, that is God's gospel. My gospel is God's gospel. His message is my message. They are one and the same. I am God's messenger. So the words that I speak to you right now are not just my words. It's not as though these are just the words of men, just the words from Paul, the man Paul. These are the words of God. What an amazing, bold, and audacious claim that he could say, the words that I speak to you right now, those are God's words. My gospel is God's gospel. And you can believe it. You can take it home. You can trust it. Paul praises God because they didn't just accept the words of a man, but they accepted his message for what it really is, the word of God. In our community group, we've just started going through Bible doctrine by Wayne Grudem. And uh, last Tuesday, we were looking at the chapter on the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. And we saw that as we examined passage after passage after passage, that the Bible is self-authenticating, that it's self-attesting. The Bible makes claims of itself and then proves itself to be true. And because it's God's word, it's the ultimate authority, the ultimate standard for truth. We can't examine scripture and sort of uh, assess it through other means. We can't look at it and and question it on the basis of our reason, or the basis of our logic, or the basis of our senses, or the basis of our experience, or the basis of science, or, or scientific methodology, you name it. Because all those things are of lesser authority the authority of God. I mean, you think about it. This is God's word. God, who created the heavens and the earth, and all that exists in it, everything that lives, God created. God sustains it. God gives it life. Just as... Brett was talking about earlier, just being floored over the fact that if God were to move but an inch, you would cease to exist. The very fact that you have life and breath and meaning is because God has given it to you. And this God is perfect. He does not sin. He does not err. He always does what is right. He always does what is good. He always does what is best. And this God is the source, the author. The revealer of all knowledge and truth. The fact that we can know anything is because God has granted it to us. There is nothing that is outside of God's truth. Not the law of thermodynamics. Not gravity. Nothing. We may have given them definitions, but God is the author of that truth. This is God's truth. And this God is always truthful. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. Therefore, He is the ultimate standard of authority and of truth. The God who created us, who owns us, who has revealed truth to us, He is the standard for His truth, for the truth. And He has made that known to us through the Bible. God has given us what we need to know through His Word. It has now the standard of truth. And so, because it is, He is truthful and authoritative in all His ways, and He gives us His standard of truth through His Word, to deny His truth, to disobey His Word, is the same thing as disobeying God. To reject the authority of Scripture is to reject the authority of God. But he has bound Himself to it. His very character is wrapped up in His Word. So the sovereign God over all creation, over you and me, has revealed his truth in his word, making it the ultimate standard for authority and truth. And so not to get into a big theological discussion with you, a little systematic going here, we need to bring it down to application, right? Do you believe this? Are you really convinced of this? That what we hold in our hands is God's message to us. His authoritative, His powerful, His truthful message to us. Do we believe in that authority? Do we believe in that power? Do we believe that it was given by inspiration of God? That it is authoritative, infallible, and without error? That it is the only sufficient rule for faith and for practice? Really? Do we believe that? To reject God's word is to reject God. To receive it, not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God is to receive God. To receive salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that's what Paul is praising God for. These Thessalonians did not accept the message as being from a man, but received it as it really is. The very truthful, the very authoritative Word of God. But this Word of God is not without effect. It doesn't end with our simple reception of it, it is transformative. In verses 13 through 14, Paul says that they not only received it, but that the Word of God is at work in you believers. So the Word of God is effective in the hearts and minds of all true believers. He says in the middle of 13, The Word of God, which is at work in you believers. This word in the Greek means that it is efficient, that it is effective, that it is fulfilling its purposes. The Word is given to to a task that is being accomplished, that is being worked out. It is productive. It is moving forward. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So some will hear and consider it foolishness. They'll consider it just words of men. But others will receive it as the word of God. And for them, it will be the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Not just to grant salvation, but to effect salvation. But the word of God not only affects salvation. If you want to flip over to Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen, we'll be in here for just a second. But Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen says that all scripture is God breathed, it is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we are taught by, we are corrected by, we are trained by, we are made competent by, we are equipped by the Word of God. If you look elsewhere in Scripture, It says that the Word of God counsels and guides us. It revives us and strengthens us. It sanctifies us and purges us. It frees us. It enriches us. It makes us fruitful and prosper. It protects us. It rewards us. It makes us wise. And it gives us joy and everlasting hope. And this is not an exhaustive list. The word of God is effectual as the Holy Spirit who dwells within all people who believe in the gospel works to apply the word of God which he himself has inspired into our hearts and into our minds so that we are changed, so that we are transformed, so that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and as we do so are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's a steady progression of the, the Spirit bringing the Word of God to bear in my heart, and my mind, and I become more like Christ. And as I continue in my life, I, the Spirit again reveals the Word of God to me, and it transforms me, it changes me, and I progress forward, forward, becoming more and more and more like Christ. The Word of God is powerful. It is effectual. Not when we receive it as just simple words of men. If we just say, yeah, this is Paul's writing from, you know, around 50 A.D. to the church in, in Thessalonica, that's true. But when we believe that it's the Word of God, when we believe in the Gospel, when we've received the Holy Spirit, that's when it becomes transformative. That's when we are changed by it. Listen to me for a second. If you tune out at all, tune back in right here. The words of men, words of human beings, no matter how astute they are, no matter how educated, no matter how wise, no no matter how eloquently they are expressed, can never have this power to change. Only God's Word can bring this kind of transformation. Only this Word can bring that kind of change. It performs in those who believe. Those who accept it as the Word of God, those who believe what it says and appropriate it to their lives, will experience ongoing transformation. But without believing, there is no power. And it's amazing that even here in our human responsibility, the fact that we receive it as the Word of God we see that God is at work. God even works in our human responsibility. His sovereignty is active in our human responsibility so that the Word of God is coming to bear and we are being transformed. It is producing His results in all true believers as they receive, as they cling to, as they hold fast to, as they live out and are changed by the Word of God. So the Word of God is at work in all those who have truly received it. And this work is evident in their lives. Paul gives examples of this for the Thessalonians. If you look at verse 14, the Thessalonians gave clear evidence that they've truly received the effective Word of God. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen that they did from the Jews." Here Paul recognizes that they have become imitators of the Judean churches. Not only did they imitate Christ and imitate the apostles, but they imitated other believers. This shows a clear consistency in life and doctrine that was shared throughout the churches, making it possible not just to imitate the church's leaders, but to imitate its members as well. We talked about this last week when we were looking at parental pictures of Christian leadership. Yes, leaders are to set the example. They are to lead in not abusing, in loving, in instructing the church. But the goal is so that all might walk in a manner worthy of God. So that every single person might do the same things that the leaders are. Right? So that they might not be abusers. So that they might be loving and sacrificing towards others. So that they might instruct and model and encourage Just as the leaders do. And this can only happen if there's a consistency in life and doctrine. If there's an awareness. If there's an identity. If there is a pattern that they can live by. This is why doctrine and applying that doctrine to life is so important. Not just for those who are in leadership. But also for those who are sitting there listening to the leadership right now. the Thessalonians most clearly imitated the churches in Judea in that they suffered the same things at the hands of their own countrymen as the Judean churches did from the Jews. Their imitation of the church was found in their faithfulness in the midst of persecution and suffering. It says, how do we know that we've received the effective word of God in our lives? You've suffered faithfully, just like the church in Judea. Your perseverance and suffering is proof that God's work, is at, God's word is at work in you. This is why Ani and Raja and Sunil and Tapan and Debu and rabweel and Wade and so many countless other men and women, not only in India, but throughout the world are willing to suffer for their faith because they have received the effective, powerful, life-transforming word of God. And they love it. They consider the gospel of Jesus Christ more precious than life itself. And so what about you? Is the gospel that precious to you? Is the word of God at work in you in this way? I pray that it's so. I pray that you will rejoice in it even though if necessary that you are grieved by various trials whether that be that you are tortured, imprisoned, mocked, flogged, stoned, sawn in two or killed by the sword. That you go about destitute, afflicted, mistreated so that you might rejoice because the tested genuineness of your faith in God's word which is more precious than gold that perishes may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I don't say that because I don't love you guys. I don't say that because I don't care about you guys. But because I do. I want that for all of us. I want to see God's Word at work in our lives. I want to see each of us reach maturity in Christ. To receive that which is most precious, most valuable, most satisfying, most glorious. I want each of us to have Christ. But it's only through believing in the effective, powerful, transforming word of God that we're going to get there. So the word of God is received. The word of God is at work. And even though this is true, to no surprise or no shock to God, third, we see that the word of God is opposed. In verses 14 through 16, Paul gives a brief polemic directed first and foremost to the Jews who stood in opposition to Christ. He says, For you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did, uh, the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea did, from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. Paul says that it was the Jews in Judea who were ultimately responsible for killing Jesus. The Gospels tell us that they were the ones demanding, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Peter says in Acts 2, verse 23, that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you Jews crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, by Gentiles. And not only did they kill Christ, but they also killed God's prophets, the very spokesmen of God's word. Jesus himself affirms this in Matthew 23, verses 29-36, through when he says that you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he promised that he would send more prophets, more, more wise men, and that these Jews would kill and crucify and flog and persecute them from town to town. Paul actually sees himself as a fulfillment of this passage. He has been flogged. He has been persecuted. He has been driven out of town by the Jews over and over and over again. I mean, You see this work out as you read through Acts that Paul and the other apostles have been driven out because of the Jews' work in opposing the Gospel. And Paul says that they displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering them from speaking to the Gentiles so that these Gentiles might be saved. The ironic thing is in their opposition of the gospel, they were trying to please God. They thought they were doing God a favor. Paul says that they had been entrusted with the oracles of God. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, who is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They had it. They had it all. But they did not understand what it meant. They missed the point of it all. Jesus couldn't be clearer in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. He condemns the Jews because He says, you search the Scriptures, God's gift to you, God's law, because in them you think you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He ultimately says, if you would have believed the Scripture, if you would have seen, you would have believed me. And he goes on to talk about how they seek the glory of men, how they'll believe people when they come in their own name, but they won't believe Jesus who comes in the name of God. The only one coming in the name of God. And he says, you know what? I don't even have to accuse you. You've got Moses to accuse you the very one you've hoped in, the very one you've trusted in, He's going to stand and accuse you because you did not receive Me and therefore you did not have eternal life. You don't have eternal life because you have the Scripture or because you read the Word of God or because you practice the religious rituals that you find in them. You can only have them as you believe, in, you can only have eternal life as you believe in Christ, as you receive Christ, as you are transformed by faith in Christ. He says, I am the fulfillment of all its promises, all the oaths all the prophecies, all the promises, all the oracles of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And though you have the scriptures, if you fail to see them in them that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then you are opposed to the very word of God that you perish or that you cherish. Can you imagine that? To develop a whole ritual system a religion of worship centered around the Word of God and be completely oblivious to it. Paul is not presenting an anti-Semitic argument. Okay, He's not against the Jews. He's not railing on them specifically like we should take this and be against the Jews because of it. We have to remember that, that Jesus was a Jew. That Paul was a Jew. We know from Romans 9 that Paul loved the Jews and wished that they would receive the gospel so that they might come to him. And, and he was willing to sacrifice his own life to do that. I mean, he, even his pattern of ministry, as he went from a town to town to town, he went first to the synagogue, first to the Jews. And when they rejected him, then he went to the Gentiles. Paul loved the Jews. This is not an anti-Semitic argument. Rather, it's an argument against antichrists, against those who are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jews were not the only ones who killed Christ. Remember, he died at the hands of lawless men, by Romans, by Gentiles. The Jews were not the only ones who killed the prophets. The apostles could be considered prophets, right? They're writing down the oracles of God. Guess what? All but two of them died at the hands of Gentiles. They're not the only persecutors. They're not the only ones who displease God. They're not the only ones who oppose the gospel message. Gentiles do that as well. Anyone who hinders the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation is an antichrist. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And until Christ returns, there will always be antichrists. There will always be those who are opposed to the gospel. Who are unwilling to hear it and to receive it. There will be those who hate the gospel. I mean, think about it. The gospel reveals who we really are. That we are utterly wicked sinners. Who likes to call themselves that? Is someone texting me right now? (laughs) My phone's going crazy. I don't know how to do it. It's awesome. Sorry. Ignore the beeping. (laughs) The reality is we're utterly wicked sinners. We've all rebelled against God. We have set ourselves as enemies against Him. That we have we've rebelled against Him in our thoughts, in our words and deeds. We've, we've tried to live as if this is our world and we're God. That we don't need Him. Or that we need Him to kind of fill up what is lacking in our lives, but everything else, we're in control of it. It requires that we submit to God as the sovereign Lord over all the universe. Again, we don't like it. We want to live as if this is our world and we're God. It demands that we admit that we don't know everything. That we have to admit that, what's we, that what we once considered foolishness is really the wisdom and truth of God. And for some, it smells like death. The, the thing that floors me is people hear the good news And they might affirm it. They might recognize that they're sinners. That they deserve the wrath and punishment of God. And then they say, well, that's where I'm headed. That's where I'm going. So I might as well live it up while I can. And even though they hear, and even though they partially receive, they understand the truth, they're unwilling to embrace it, and they still stand in opposition to the gospel of God. They're still unwilling to receive it. Even though they are repulsed by the out idea of the outcome, they still refuse to come to Christ. And therefore, they are opposers of the word of God. So again, is that you? Are you living functionally as an antichrist? Now don't just dismiss that because of the Word. I want you to think deeply about it. Maybe you don't deny the Gospel outright. But do you search the Scriptures because in them you think you might inherit eternal life? Do you think that all your religious practices might gain you salvation? Yet you you cannot verify that the Word of God is truly at work in your life. Or maybe... You hinder the gospel in the way you live. Either in the fear of man like the Pharisees did, who did not preach to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, but instead of being a light to the nations, they kept it for themselves. Are you afraid of offending? Afraid of being mocked? And and so by your fear, miss opportunity to bear witness to Christ. Even there, you're living functionally as an antichrist. Or maybe you hinder the gospel because your life is not consistent with your profession. Maybe you pervert the grace of God into sensuality, or indulgence, or ease, or comfort. Is the word of God really at work in your life so that you look more and more like Christ? Or do you just reflect the world? A world which is opposed to Christ. There's no middle of the road. It's not gray. The world lives in opposition to Christ. Do you look different from that or just like it? Friends, these are serious questions. Our sin, our rebellion, our fear, even our religion can serve as opposition to the word of God. We can live our lives in such a way that we deny or hinder the gospel. And when we do, we're functioning as antichrists. And though there will always be, until Christ returns, those who are opposed to the word of God, we can be assured fourthly of this that the word of God will be vindicated. Paul says that though the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, though they drove him out from town to town to town, though they displeased God and opposed all mankind and hinder them from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, God's promises hold true, and it results in them always filling up the measure of their sins. But the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Throughout the Old Testament, God would allow nations to fill up the measure of their sins or to reach a certain limit before He would judge them as a nation. We see this most clearly and specifically in the Amorites. If you looked at Genesis fifteen sixteen. God gives the promise that when the Amorites fill up the measure of their sins, they will be judged. And God has this pattern of doing this. It's not just the Amorites. I mean, we could point out the Edomites. We could point out the Egyptians. We could point out the Babylonians or the Assyrians. That God continues to be patient with with people and, and, and continuing to impart His grace on them for a while, for a while, for a while. Continuing to endure their rebellion to a point at which He judges them physically. But ultimately, that physical judgment of that nation is pointing to a greater spiritual, internal judgment that he has awaiting for them. Israel was a privileged nation. They were the people of God. They had received God's word, they had received the covenants, they had received the worship, they had received the glory. But that does not mean that they were free to do whatever they please, to live however they want, to assume upon the grace of God that they were somehow free from the judgment of God. As we read through biblical history of Israel, we see that God delivered them from Egypt by a prophet, Moses. And as he led them out into the wilderness, they rebelled against God's leader. They rebelled against God's word, and thereby they were punished. They had to live 40 years in the wilderness, right? And so finally, God's judgment was over. They can now proceed into the land. They continue to rebel and, and rebuff against God's chosen leaders. Eventually, when we come to judges, that they have abandoned God, and they have sought after false gods, and so God... Causes them to be delivered over into the hands of their enemies. They plead out to God in repentance. And so God sends a deliverer to them. And restores them again. And this happens cyclically all throughout Judges. Fast forward again to God establishes them as a nation. God appoints a king over them. They still rebuff against The king, the appointed leader, I mean, even David did not have it good. His own sons rebelled against him. And he spent time as the king out away from his very kingdom. And as a result, the kingdom was divided. Eventually, one kingdom fell into exile and captivity. Then the other; they were under the hand of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then God was still merciful and established them again. And He had promised all the way along that He would send His Messiah, His chosen one, His appointed one, who would deliver them once and for all, so that they would walk in God's ways. That He would give them new hearts through this Messiah, so that they might follow after God. That They would be able to teach one another God's Word. And this was the promise that they had as they were this small, insignificant nation that one day this leader, this Messiah, would raise up and deliver them. And here He comes, Jesus Christ, and they reject Him. And that's it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. The judgment has fallen upon them because they have rejected the one that they had been hoping for, the one that they had been praying for, the one that they had supposedly believed in, because they were trusting in Scripture and and distorting it to meet their own ends rather than receiving what it said. They killed their Messiah and they placed themselves under God's wrath. Their time has come, it came when Jesus died on the cross. And it was unfolding. It had been inaugurated. Paul was looking. This is, this is in the 50s, early 50s, when he wrote to, to the Thessalonians. And he had seen evidence that he thought was God's judgment against the nation. Okay? There were a few things that happened. And for, from 45 to 47 AD, God sent a plague upon Judea, a bad plague. This is why Paul was trying to get money to send to the church in Jerusalem that we see throughout his epistles. It was because of this this famine that was happening. In 49 AD, the emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. And also in that same year, it was during the Passover, that they were celebrating in the temple, that thousands of Jews were massacred at the hands of Gentiles. Paul saw this and he said, look, this is evidence of the fact that God's wrath is upon them at last not fully, not finally but here it is God is going to judge them not just physically but spiritually as well what we can learn about that for ourselves is that anyone who rejects God's promised one is going to face the judgment and wrath of God Do you realize that we all have a measure of sin? This is an amazing thing. Your sin does not take God by surprise. God knew before the creation of the world how many sins I would commit. I have a measure of sin. And I'm going to be judged according to that sin. I'll either be judged in my rebellion against God, or in my looking to myself for my own righteousness or I will be judged according to the righteousness of another. If I'm trusting in myself or I'm continuing to rebel, if I'm seeking my own way, living as if this is my world and I am God, then that judgment will result in eternal wrath by God because I have been a rebel rebel against Him my entire life. For those who are trusting in Christ's righteousness, who are looking to the work of another, the perfect Son of God, for them is eternal reconciliation with God, that they will be with God, that they will be like Him, that they will be transformed by Him. They are looking to Christ. They are receiving the sacrifice that He offered. When he gave his life, a perfect life, a life that you and I couldn't live, and gave it up on the cross as a substitute for our sin. And rose again on the third day to verify that God was pleased with his sacrifice and that each of us would stand before him in judgment. Those are the two options. You you have that measure of sin, you cannot go beyond that measure of sin, but you will be judged by that measure of sin. Even if it was only one sin that was enough for eternal condemnation, what are you going to trust in? Yourself? Your own righteousness? Or are you going to trust in the righteousness of another? But we need to remember one thing as we close up here God will not fail, He will be victorious. God will vindicate His Word. He says in Isaiah 55:10 through 11 For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish, it shall accomplish that which I purpose." and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's living and abiding word will stand forever. It will not come back empty. It will complete its purposes, either for judgment or for mercy, either for condemnation or for salvation. But God will be victorious. It will not come back void. One day, We will recognize that God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess to the truth of God's word that Jesus is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. We receive, we're sanctified. We are victorious, despite opposition, not because of anything that we ultimately do, but because of God's living and abiding, powerful, authoritative, life-transforming, conquering word. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you and we ask that your word might speed forth That your word, which is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, that is able to, to pierce our very souls and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. We pray that it might accomplish its work in us. God, to bring us to conviction and to repentance and faith. To bring us to Christ's likeness. To be transformed by it so that we might behold the wonder of Christ, so that we might love You, so that we might not continue in our rebellion against You or trying to live by our own work, our own righteousness, but to seek Him, to be changed by Him. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, I pray that if there are those here today that, that are just struggling to believe that this is Your Word, that You would convince them of this truth. I pray that they would give themselves over to reading Your Word and thereby seeing how it proves itself to be true. God, I pray that if there are those here that that haven't trusted or maybe are struggling in particular ways to really apply this to their lives, that they would be honest and vulnerable and tell somebody about it so that they might seek help in applying the Word of God, this powerful message to their lives. May we see that it is relevant for every aspect of our lives. Not just on Sunday morning or when we're trying to be religious, we're trying to do our duty before you, but as we go out from here, realizing that you have called us to be your children, Children that have a relationship with you. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that we receive it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.